to Even Darker. I'm so glad you're here. Having always been fascinated by fairy tales, mythical creatures, mythology, folk tales, and legends, I wanted to create a podcast about these exact stories. In each episode, Chris Gordon, Jay Stinnett, or Damian Drake will tell us a story. Then I, Regina Drake, will review the points of the story I found most interesting, shocking, or downright unforgivable. Allow me to show you the origins of things even darker. Take heed, these are in the original early content, not the Big Mouse versions. No shade on him, but this is not for the young. Excited to announce our edition of Mythical Moments of Mythology with Karen Ellinger. Finally, we are going to get a dose of mythology. My favorite. For our 29th episode, we will start with a fairy tale called The Twelve Months comes from the Czech Republic, first mentioned by Mr. Claret Bartolomez Clements in the 14th century. And now for our story. A young and beautiful girl, called Maruska, is sent into the cold forest in the winter to perform a possible task by her evil stepmother. She must get spring violets, summer strawberries, and fall apples in midwinter as presents to give her stepsisters for her birthday. The girl ventures onto and into the blizzard and eventually meets the twelve personified months by a warm fire in the woods. When she approaches and asks politely if she might warm her hands at their fire, they ask why she is there and when she tells them about her stepfamily and what she's looking for, the spirits help her. The child spirit of March creates violets, youthful June the strawberries, and grown September the apples, at the direction of the elderly January. The stepmother and her sisters take the items without a word of thanks. When the evil stepsister comes to search for the twelve months herself in the snow and hoping for gifts of her own, the spirits disappear, taking their fire and leaving the stepsister cold and hungry, searching for an eternity. The same fate lay in store for the wicked stepmother. She too let greed run away with her, and to this day she still searches in an unfriendly forest for the path back to home. The kind sister remained in the house and lived happily ever after. The story we just heard is a Slavic fairy tale. Mr. Claret, blah, blah, I don't want to murder his name a second time, was a Czech writer, scholar, physician, lexicographer, canon of St. Vitus Cathedral in Prague, and a master of the Uni of Prague during the 14th century. Quite the overachiever. Lexicographer is a person who compiles dictionaries. Anyway, this scholar was the first to mention the fairy tale as a preaching exemplum. 
A quote about the story I found is as follows. Slovene midwinter deities and personifications of days in the yearly work and life cycles. It was collected later by a famous Czech writer by the name of Bozina Nemkova. This fairy tale has been adapted to film and stolen by Russians who changed the characters, surprise, surprise, to a young girl of nobility and a Russian soldier. Evil stepmothers and evil stepsisters. Easy targets. Especially since we found out that in the original form, it is often the mother or father that was later to be replaced by the step-parent. Greed. So often the takedown for these evildoers. Searching for eternity? Wow, in a blizzard, no less. Oh. Notice Marushka lived alone after this ordeal, happily ever after. The moral? I think it's manners can save your life. I chose a short synopsis for our lead story due to our even darker story being a bit long. Sorry, Damien. I think you'll agree it's too good to edit down. Be warned, this fairy tale is action-packed with gruesome fights. As promised, now for even darker. The widow gave birth to twin girls on the night she was told of her husband's death. She screamed and kicked and called out for him, even though she knew he was dead. Till finally, with one great push, gave birth to a little girl. She held the screaming infant in her arms, but as she looked upon it closer in the lamplight, she wept and cried and beat her chest. For the babe had been born with a hunchback and a great long teeth and narrow eyes slitted like a snake. Christ and his mother in heaven, how happy it makes me now to know that my husband's death allowed him not to see this terror. Hardly had she spoken the words when the convulsions began anew. Before she even knew it, the widow gave birth to another girl who she beheld in the lamplight and exclaimed, I take back what I said. This little thing is very precious and what a delight. Exhausted, she cut the umbilical cord of both girls with a knife and fell asleep halfway through nursing them even though the first one's tooth would bite into her nipples and occasionally draw blood, threatening to rouse her from her slumber. But the other would be quiet and careful and not make a sound, easing the widow's mind and letting her sleep her dreamless slumber. The firstborn girl was uglier and sin when she was born, but did not get any prettier. She grew to be taller than a boy and stronger too. Long, coarse hair coated her arms and her long teeth grew longer and longer. The hump on her back even grew much bigger. Her toad green eyes became narrower. Boys no longer made fun of her, but feared her. When one of them got careless, the firstborn girl would catch up with them with barely two great strides and knock them on the ground with one blow. She was tough as marble and with the strength to match, which is why her mother named her Marbo. The secondborn girl, on the other hand, who was the most beautiful baby in the village, when she was born, she grew up to be the very picture of delight. She grew up to be perfect height, and her legs were long and slender. Her arms were milky and her teeth, the appearance of her smile like diamonds set up by a craftsman, her back straight and narrow, and her waist to match. Her maiden blue eyes big and round and observant. Boys never made fun of her and, in fact, bent themselves over backwards to woo her. But the second-born girl would deny them all for her sister's sake, who she could not see hurt. Her mother named her after her ancestor's word for beauty and thus named her Kahlo. 
When Marbo and Kahlo came of the marrying age, their mother left the village and headed to a nearby town to look for proper grooms. The men in the town had heard of Kahlo's unsurpassed beauty. They brought her silks and mother of pearls and inquired not of her dowry, asking only her hand of promising riches. But Kahlo would turn them down, telling them she'd marry after her sister found a husband of her very own. But when the grooms looked at Marble, they would ask six times her dowry, and the mother would weep, and they'd return to town, their offers of marriage revoked. So the mother went to the village soothsayer with a bag of wheat and asked her to give her an answer, a way out of this conundrum. The soothsayer, who had been older than the village itself, looked at the wheat, started over and over in her hands and said, I cannot make out your daughter's future in the wheat. It is too coarse and hard. Handing the bag of wheat back to the mother, she said, have your daughters take the wheat to the millers, ground it into flour. Tomorrow's Christmas, the mother exclaimed, and the miller won't be working. Then you have to take it to him today. His mill won't have ground any wheat today and the flour will be pure. It will help me see the future. All the clearer, said the soothsayer, running her tongue along her toothless gums and a glint in her eye. The mother went back home anyways and handed the, her daughters the sack of wheat and bid them to go to the millers and have it ground by tonight. In vain did Marlboro protest that, that it would take them nearly the whole day just to get there and callow that tomorrow was Christmas and they couldn't bear being away from home. The mother's only command, the girls sent them away to the millers. By the time the girls reached the mill, the sun had already been behind Kazafas. Kahlo cried that they wouldn't make it in time. But Marvel only grunted, picked up the bag of wheat and her sister over her shoulder in one hand, and reached the mill within an hour without even breaking a sweat. The moon was slowly rising from her resting place when Marvel knocked on the miller's door so hard that the plaster on the wall shook. Upon receiving no answer, Kahlo climbed her sister's shoulders and looked through the window. The mill was silent and seemed deserted, for about a hunched old man by the fire, whom the girls knew to be the miller. Just push me a little higher, Marble, Kahlo said. I'll climb up through the window and go stir the miller from his sleep, so we may be done and get back home before dawn. With a flex of her muscle, Marble shoved Kahlo into the window and inside the mill. She gently nudged his arm, and when she saw the great wooden spike that had been driven through the neck and up through his skull, transfixing him to the floor, his vacant eyes staring into the fire in horror and disbelief, Kahlo tried her best not to scream. She would have done it too, had she not heard the thumping of something round and hard down the steps and seen the miller's wife had rolled down the wooden steps and lay by her feet. She saw her ears and nose had been cut off and her hair had been torn. As if stepping from the shadows or conjured by the fire smoke, short and wicked forms burst before her and all around her. They were short creatures with crooked noses and skin black as coal. With her eyes that seemed large without pupils, the color of murder. Their long claws, arms held axes and lashes, and a few of them, the arms of the miller's wife. They stared at Kahlo and grinning their tooth-filled grin, the girl screamed. Marble heard her sister scream, began to pound on the thick wooden door with her shoulder. To no avail, she ran down the slope and found a young oak tree, which she uprooted with her bare hands, ran back to use it as a ram. Kahlo knew what the creatures were, those short and crooked little horns. She saw their stone axes, their bent backs, and their long, dirty barrettes, and knew them for goblins. Of course, she thought, it's Christmas Eve. Today, she thought of the warning that her mother had taken for all the tales of the wicked, spiteful goblins hacking and sawing at the foundations of the world all year, given free reign on the surface only the night of Christmas Eve. The head of the goblin, who wore the miller's donkey head on his brow like a crown, clotted blood running down his face, jumped on the dead man's back and stood face to face. 
with Kahlo. What have we here then, pretty thing? Bet your milky white skin would make a pretty coat. I want her eyes to make earrings out of for my beloved, said the second in command. And her teeth, her teeth will make a fine necklace for my daughter's dowry, said the eldest goblin, whose daughter's dowry, the others knew, was his only chance of ever marrying her off. Kahlo kept backing away as the goblins advanced on her, dividing her into spoils even as she stood there. She looked at the long clanking teeth and their green tongues that spoke her name and heard the sound of a whetstone grinding their axes. With her heels stuck on the dinner plate of the miller, she heard the sound of rattling bones and wooden boards. Kahlo looked down and then saw a thigh bone of a pig, near stripped of meat, which was probably the miller's last meal. Without thinking, the girl grabbed the bone and swung it at the small goblin that had reached for her, the blow striking it across the forehead. There was a short exclamation crunching sound and the goblin ceased their babbling at once. And as they saw the bone planted on their brother's forehead, halfway through his brain, with a stutter and a mutter and a torrent of brain blood, the goblin fell dead on the floor. At once, the goblins moved to grab the girl, who started running for her life, thinking back to the goblins' weakness that the priest had told them about when they were but toddlers. The pig's thigh bone that killed them in one blow, the, the blessings of a house's threshold that drove them away, and holy water, which made their skins blister and boil. The burning of hemlock that choked them, and lastly, the sign of the cross, which made them sick to their stomachs. Screaming for her sister, she ran upstairs, looking for shelter. It was then that Marble reached the door with the oak tree and rammed and slammed it against the iron-bound wood, smashed it once, twice, three times, cracking the wood and breaking the hinges. On her fourth blow, the mill's door did crumble and fall to the floor, and Marble burst in, roaring her sister's name. Half of the goblins stopped dead in their tracks at the sound of Marble's war, which made even the mill's great stone wheel rattle on its thick axle. The leader of the goblins sent his best men a check on it and kill whoever might have come to take away their prized woman. But as the half-dozen goblin men came down the steps, axes and lashes and ready, expecting perhaps a crazed beast or a foolishly hardy man, they found Marble, and they quaked with fear. The bravest among them charged her, axe in hand, but the girl grabbed his arm, stomping him mid-blow, bringing the axe down on his head again and again and again. They heard the crunch of his skull and the crack of his bones, and they would have fallen back had not the second-in-command lashed at them and screamed, howling. The goblins fell on Marble and grabbed her arms, bit her legs, and ripped at her dress. But the girl, who was stronger than an ox, tossed them off like they were ragdolls. She broke their arms and smashed their heads against the floorboards under the heel of her boot. She ripped at their necks with her long, sharp teeth, making her way up the stairs when the goblin on the steps lashed at her. Marble let his whip coil around her arm and pulled him close, driving her fist through his ribcage. The goblin died, his feet kicking at empty air as he felt her first bore through the flesh of his bones, crushing his spine at the end. As the carnage downstairs went on, Kahlo had locked herself into the miller's bedroom, where his son had been tied to the bed bleeding from the head where the goblin had lopped off an ear, crying. She undid his gags and shook him to cease him from babbling. Where did your mother keep the cross? She shook him when the miller's son kept babbling. She struck him across the face and asked again, You will not die tonight. Neither will I. Where did your mother keep the cross? The miller's son pointed with his chin at the chest of the foot of the bed. Kala reached in and saw it was locked. Panic settled, settled in as she tried to pry the lid open even as the goblins are hacking at the door, breaking through the wood, Kahlo stopped then trying to gather her thoughts over the screaming and babbling and the weeping. 
It was then that the moon shone through the bedroom window, making the shadows grow long, and Kahlo found the answer in her trouble. She ran back and grabbed the miller's son again and shook him from his mother's bedside. The bone needle she used for weaving. By the time the goblins tore down the door, Kahlo had hid beneath the bed, praying but ready. Marble had made her way up the miller's floor, the goblins scratching in her wake. Coated in their blood, her dress torn, her hair ruffled, she seemed to them like St. Marina, come to bash the skulls of devils and break their spines on her knee. The few that foolishly stood in her way, Marble killed with a swipe of her hand and the snap of her teeth. As their brothers dropped their weapons and ran for dear life, Kahlo saw the door had been torn down, the headman of the goblins walking in the room, his form and all the sinisters in the moonlight. His great hooked nose sniffed at the air, and immediately he knew the scent of Kahlo over the fear of the miller's son. Raising his axe, he struck at the bed and cleft it in twain, with one blow of his mighty muscles nearly crushing the girls underneath, sending the boy flying. Kahlo would have died right then and there had she not raised the bone needles in front of the headman's face, holding them so that made them the sign of the cross. The headman screamed at the sight of the holy symbol, his skin withering in the sight of it, his stomach crunching, his men grew ill upon seeing it and backed away, and Kahlo hunted them with her improvised weapon before her like of a shield. They ran, the headman and his chosen men, when they fell on Marlborough, who had reached the miller's bedroom, a trail of gore and broken bodies in her wake, finding himself between the symbol of his enemy and Marlborough. The headman jumped the firstborn sister, choosing death in battle over dishonor. Like a wolf starved for weeks, he jumped on Marvel's chest, clawing at her cheeks, biting at her neck and shoulders like a tigress cornered by a hunter. Marvel fought back and then locked themselves in combat as the rest of the goblins ran and hid in the shadows, silently praying that the morning would come and dispel them from this place of horror. Kahlo drove the goblins away with her cross and ran back to the miller's son, helping him on to his feet. He was quiet now, the pain of his severed ear and his fear forgotten, overshadowed by Kahlo's beauty. She looked back at him and blushed, noticing longing, when she suddenly realized that Marlboro's and the headsman's scream had long since ceased and had now commenced anew, changed in some way that Kalos could not comprehend. But as she and the miller's son looked into the corridor and saw the fight between the sister and the headman having changed to a wholly different kind of struggle, they blushed and looked away, laughing. As the rooster crowed, the goblin's headman, spent by the long lovemaking, fell on his knees and gave Marlboro his weapon and garb, making his men kneel on his command. Come with me, Marble, you terrible baka of the battlefield. Come with me in the wall below, and you will be showered with diamonds and dwell in the caves below the mountain, where my myriad servants dwell. Your envy wish be coming true with a flick of your fingers. Come with me, and I will give you more than any surface man could ever hope to ever give you. Marble looked at the little crooked creature, its long teeth, its wicked claws, its humpback, its eyes filled with all kind of longing no man that dwelt upon God's green earth would ever hold for her. She nodded her assent, embracing her sister, and followed her groom into the shadowy places that led to the caverns below, never to be seen again. Kalos nursed the miller's son's wounds, who fell on his knees. It turned that Christmas morning and bid the girl to bring her mother, that he could ask her hand in marriage. The priest heard Kahlo's words and prayed for the miller's son and her sister too. Then the four of them buried his mother and his father and spoke the last rites, then went back to the village to celebrate their marriage. But as Kahlo enjoyed the joys of the world, so was Marble showered in the glory of the world below. The headman, true to his word, 
showered her with gold and precious stones found in the bowels of the earth. The goblin men, anewed her beauty, did sing ballads of her long, sharp teeth and her killing blows. The women envied her and did every bidding, seeking to both emulate her and surpass her in vain. As Kahlo drank the sweet red wine of the Thrasley vineyards, Marble tasted the liquor from the roots of the trees, and Kahlo lived under the constant care of her husband. So was Marble given her own retroon of servants to obey her. Kahlo lived upon the green earth, an ever-loving husband by her side. Marble was crowned, and as Kahlo grew old and saw her children live to ripe young ages, with a brood of grandchildren to her own. So did Marble watch the caverns below become crowded with progeny, a great iron crown on her brow. And as Kahlo gave her final breath and was lowered into the earth, so was Marble ascended by her children, grandchildren, and their children too, upward, there to meet with her sister and be forever as one. So what did you think? Outrageous, no? As we know from the story, Calicanceros live beneath the ground, but the bastards are trying to chop down the tree that holds up the earth. However, according to folklore, when they are about to see the final part, Christmas dawns, and they are able to come to the surface. They forget about the tree, and they come up above ground to bring trouble to mortals. Finally, on Epiphany, January 6th, the sun starts to move again, and they must return underground to continue their sawing. They see that during their absence, the world tree has healed itself, so they must start working all over again. This is believed to occur annually. God help us if they ever get organized. Well, here's some more information on Cal... I'm just going to call them goblins from now on. On the goblin appearance, which varies from region to region. Some have animal parts, such as hairy bodies, horse legs, or boar's tusks. Some are enormous, others diminutive, or as small humans with a horrible odor. Predominantly male, often with protruding sexual characteristics, the Greeks imagined them as tall, black, and hairy, burning red eyes, goats or donkey ears, monkey's arms, tongues that hung out, and heads that were huge. Humanoids apart from their black long tails. Now we know. This is why Marbo was considered such a beauty to these goblins. Protection against these guys. Some cultures throw lokiments, pronouncing that horribly, it is a donut-like dessert filled with syrup, along with some sausages, onto the roof. And then they sing a specific song. Sorry, I didn't find the song. The plan is that the goblins will eat these things and then leave. There are other protections, but check this out. Some leave a fire burning all night long so that the goblins can't enter through the chimney. People would burn the Yule log for the duration of the 12 days. I will never look at the Yule log the same. Also, some mark their doors with a black cross on Christmas Eve and burn incense. According to legend, any child born the 12 days of Christmas was in danger of transforming into a goblin. 
To prevent this transformation, you had to bind the baby with tresses of garlic or straw, or you could choose to singe the baby's toenails. Calicanceros seems to express the collective sense for the Irish word for leprechaun and the English word of gnome and goblin. Finally, the not-so-attractive win-the-day being our heroine and the queen in the end, right? I mean, she is wearing a crown and everyone wanted to be her. Now that's a happy ending for all, except the people who were murdered. Whoops. And now for our weekly installment of Pinocchio. The return of Pinocchio. Let's review. When we last left Pinocchio, he was trying to find his way back to the Blue Fairy. He had an epiphany, disobedience equals unhappiness, and then he came across that snake that was blocking the path. Remember, smoke was coming out of its tail, and it had red eyes. It was immense. Well, and Pinocchio, of course, becomes impatient, and then he ends up getting stuck in the mud headfirst, and the serpent laughs himself to death. Next, Pinocchio gets caught in the farmer's trap. If the recap wasn't thorough enough for you, refer to episode 25 for the complete chapter 20 of Pinocchio. Chapter 21. Pinocchio is caught by a farmer who uses him as a watchdog for his chicken coop. Pinocchio, as you may well imagine, began to scream and weep and beg, but all of this was of no use, for no houses were to be seen and not a soul passed by on the road. Night came on. A little because of the sharp pain in his leg, a little because of the fright at finding himself alone in the darkness of the field, the marionette was about to faint when he saw a tiny glowworm flickering by. He called to her and said, Dear little glowworm, will you set me free? Poor little fellow, replied the glowworm, stopping to look at him with pity. How came you to be caught in this trap? I sent into this lonely field to take a few grapes and... Are the grapes yours? No. Who has taught you to take things that do not belong to you? I was hungry. Hunger, my boy, is no reason for taking something which belongs to another. It's true, it's true, said Pinocchio in tears. I, I won't do it again. Just then, the conversation was interrupted by approaching footsteps. It was the owner of the field who was coming on tiptoes to see if, by chance, he'd caught the weasels which had been eating his chickens. Great was his surprise when, on holding up his lanterns, he saw that instead of a weasel, he'd caught a boy. Ah, you little thief, said the farmer in an angry voice. So you're the one who steals my chickens. Not I, no, no, cried Pinocchio, sobbing bitterly. I came here only for a very few grapes. He who steals my grapes may easily steal chickens also. Take my word for it. I'll give you a lesson you'll remember for a long while. He opened the trap, grabbed the marionette by the collar, and carried him to the house as if he were a puppy. 
When he reached the yard in front of the house, he flung him to the ground, put a foot on his neck, and said to him roughly, It's late now, and it's time for bed. Tomorrow we'll settle matters. In the meantime, since my watchdog died today, you may take his place and guard my henhouse. No sooner said than done, he slipped a dog collar around Pinocchio's neck and tightened it so that it would not come off. A long iron chain was tied to the collar. The other end of the chain was nailed to a wall. If tonight it should happen to rain, said the farmer, you can sleep in that little doghouse nearby where you will find plenty of straw for a soft bed. It's been Melampo's bed for three years and will be good enough for you. And if by any chance any thieves should come, be sure to bark. After that last warning, the farmer went into the house and closed the door and barred it. Poor Pinocchio huddled close to the doghouse, more dead than alive from cold, hunger, and fright. Now and again he pulled and tugged at the collar, which nearly choked him and cried out in a weak voice, I deserve it. I you deserve it. I've been nothing but a truant and a vagabond. I've, I've never obeyed anyone, and I've always done as I pleased if I were only like so many others and had studied and worked and stayed with my poor old father, I should not find myself here now in this field, in the darkness, taking the place of a farmer's watchdog. Oh, if only I could start all over again. But what's done is done. It can't be undone. I must be patient. After this little sermon to himself, which came from the very depths of his heart, Pinocchio went into the doghouse and fell asleep. Will this be Pinocchio's bottom? I mean, please, this guy. Oh, a dog collar. Oh, no. And it could have been so much worse. And what happened to the glowworm? I thought the glowworm was going to come through. Oh, I'm so glad Pinocchio's back. And I look forward to what happens next week. Now for our new segment, Mythical Moments in Mythology with Karen Ellinger. Basilisk, King Serpent, the mythical snake of the poisonous glance, is listed as a real creature in European bestiaries up to the 18th century. The basilisk is called king because it is reputed to have on its head a crown-shaped crest. If the basilisk has features of a rooster, it is known as a cocktrice. A basilisk is hatched by a cockerel from the egg of a serpent or a toad, while the cocktrice is hatched from the cockerel's egg incubated by a toad or serpent. The cockatrice can also result from a hen's egg being left on a hill and incubated by a toad. Still, the original version of the basilisk remains that of a giant snake or like a being with the body of a snake and the head, wings, and legs of a rooster. This terrifying beast is known for killing its victims with its gaze. In some versions of the myth, it has the ability to breathe fire. The basilisk can only be a male, for it must have the most proper receptacle of venom and destructive qualities. It is also said to be so evil that when it cannot petrify animals, it turns to plants, withering them anywhere it goes. 
Like the Gogrun head, whose glance was equally poisonous, the basilisk was closely linked with women's menstrual blood. As the serpent-haired Gorgon head represented women's wise blood and guarded menstrual mysteries that men were forbidden to behold, so there was a popular medieval belief that a hair taken from the head of a menstruating woman and buried in the earth would turn into a serpent or basculus. Superstitious folds supposed that all the serpents on the Gorgon's head were basculus, which derived their evil eyes from her own deadly glance. One of the earliest accounts of the basculus comes from Pliny the Elder's Natural History, written in roughly 79 AD. It is produced in the province of Cyrene in North Africa. Being not more than 12 fingers in length, it has a white spot on the head, strongly resembling a sort of diadem. When it hisses, all the other serpents fly from it and it does not advance its body like the others by a succession of folds, but moves along upright and erect upon the middle. It destroys all shrubs, not only by its contact, but those even that it has breathed upon. It burns up all the grass, too, and it breaks the stones. So tremendous is its nauseous influence. It was formerly a general belief that if a man on horseback killed one of these animals with a spear, the poison would run up the weapon and kill not only the rider, but the horse as well. The vasculous venom is so strong that upon drinking from a well, the water remains polluted for centuries, bringing death to anyone drinking it. To this dreadful monster, the effluvium of the weasel is fatal, a thing that has been tried with success, for the kings have often desired to see its body when killed. So true is it that it has pleased nature that there should be nothing without its antidote. The animal is thrown into the hole of the basculus, which is easily known from the soil around it being infected. The weasel destroys the basculus by its odor, but dies itself in the struggle of nature against its own self. Medieval travelers described it as a large, fire-breathing creature with a terrifying roar. It soon became described as a rooster with a serpent's tail and occasionally dragon wings. The tales about the basculus being petrified by its own appearance in a mirror exist, but it can be slayed by other various methods. It is also vulnerable to the cockcrow of a rooster. This belief led to travelers carrying roosters for self-protection, although roosters never actually had the power to kill the basculus. Leonardo da Vinci included a basculus in his bestiary, saying it is so utterly cruel that when it cannot kill animals by its baleful glaze, it turns upon herbs and plants and fixing its gaze upon them withers them up. It scares all serpents with its whistling. In his notebooks, he describes the basilisk in an account clearly dependent directly or indirectly on Pliny's. Leonardo noted of the weasel, This beast finding the lair of the basilisk kills it with the smell of its urine, and this smell indeed often kills the weasel itself. In William Shakespeare's Richard III, the recently widowed Anne Neville, on hearing seductive compliments on her eyes from her husband's murderer, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, retorts that she wishes that they were those of a ballast that she might kill him. In Act Two, Scene Four of Shakespeare's Cymbeline, a character says about a ring, it is a ballast unto mine eye, kills me to look on't. 
Bram Stoker alludes to the creature in chapter four of his 1897 novel, Dracula, when Jonathan Harker encounters the vampire Count Dracula sleeping in his crypt and makes a futile attempt to destroy him. A terrible desire came upon me to rid the world of such a monster. There was no lethal weapon at hand, but I seized a shovel which the workmen had been using to fill the cases, and lifting it high, struck with the edge downward at the hateful face. But as I did so, the head turned and the eyes fell upon me with all their blaze of basilisk horror. The sight seemed to paralyze me, and the shovel turned in my hand and glanced from the face, merely making a deep gash above the forehead. The end. Well, this is no Harry Potter basilisk. Menstrual mysteries? The only mystery around my house was whether my family would survive. I even gave a goog of wise blood. Nothing. Just the book and the film. That this monster is real and moves upright, that is the stuff of nightmares. The basilisk wipes out shrubbery. Really quite amazing. And who are you going to call? A weasel. I guess it makes sense that the creature that emits or oozes such toxic poison would be killed through scent. Fascinating. You did it again, Karen. Entertained, scared, and educated me. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Even Darker. Please review and follow us. If you'd like to support us, do it! I'd love to hear your feedback, so leave a voice message if you are so inclined. I want to thank two of my most favorite men on this planet, Damian Drake and Jay Stinnett, for being our storytellers. And give an even darker welcome to Karen Ellinger. Even Darker is made with Anchor and can be found on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcast platforms. 